Hi and welcome to this podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we're continuing our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 12. As always, if you are enjoying this series, make sure you click subscribe so that you uh, get the future episodes and chapters as they come out. And remember that I do put in World War One history podcasts interspersed within these readings. Right, let's get on with chapter 12. Everything you hold very vile is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir dem für uns möglichen weltumfangenen Geistgenau von Gewinn. Chapter 12. A brainwave. Making a funk hole. Plug Street Wood. Sniping. On arriving at St. Yvonne for our third time round here, we, as usual now, went into our cottage again, and the regiment spread itself out around the same old trenches. There was always a lot of work for me to do at nights, as machine guns always have to be moved as occasion arises, or if one gets a better idea for their position. By this time I had one gun in the remnant of a house about 50 yards away from our cottage. This was a reserve gun, and was there carrying out an idea of mine, i.e. that it was in a central position which would enable it to be rapidly moved to any threatened part of the line, and also it would form a bit of an asset in the event of our having to defend the village. The section for this gun lived in an old cellar close by, and it was this cellar which gave me an idea. When I went into our cottage, I searched to see if we had overlooked a cellar. No, there wasn't one. Now then, the idea, I thought, why not make a cellar, and thus have a place to dive into when the strafing begins? After this terrific outburst of sagacity, I sat down in a corner, and with a biscuit load of jam, discussed my scheme with my platoon commander, Pal. We agreed it was a good idea. I was feeling energetic, and always liking a little tinkering on my own, I said I would make it myself. So Hudson retired into the lean-to, and I commenced to plot this engineering project. I scraped away as much as necessary of the accumulated filth on the floor, and my knife striking something hard, I found it to be tiles. Up until then, I'd always imagined it to be an earth floor, but tiled it was right enough, large, square, dark red ones of a very rough kind. I called for Smith, my servant, and telling him to bring his entrenching tool, I began to prise up some of the tiles. It wasn't very easy fitting the blade of the entrenching tool into the crevices, but once I'd got a start and had got one or two out, things were easier. I pulled up all the tiles along one wall about eight feet long and out into the room, a distance of about four feet. I now had a bare patch of hard earth, eight feet by four, to contend with. Luckily, we had a pickaxe and a shovel lying out behind the house, so taking off my sheepskin jacket and balaclava, I started to excavate the hole which I proposed would form a sort of cellar. It was a big job, and my servant and I were hard at it, turn and turn about, the whole of that day. A dull, rainy day, a cold wind blowing the old sack about in the doorway, and in the semi-darkness inside, yours truly handing up Belgian soil on a war-worn shovel to my servant, who held a sandbag, perpetually open to receive it. A long and arduous job it was, and one in which I was precious near thinking that danger is preferable to digging. Mr. Dyan, with his backache pills, 
would have done well if he had sent one of his travellers with samples round there that night. However, at the end of two days, I had got a really good hole delved out, and now I was getting near the more interesting feature, namely putting a roof on and finally being able to live in this underground dugout. This roof was perhaps rather unique as roofs go. It was a large mattress with wooden sides, a kind of oblong box with a mattress top. I found it outside in a ruined cottage. Underneath the mattress part was a cavity filled with spiral springs. I arranged a pile of sandbags on each side of the hole in the floor in such a way as to be able to lay this curiosity on top to form a roof, the mattress part downwards. I then filled in with earth all the parts where the spiral springs were placed. Total result, a roof a foot thick of earth with a good backbone of iron springs. I often afterwards wished that the mattress had been filleted, as the spiral springs had a nasty way of bursting through the striped cover and coming at you like the lid of a jack-in-a-box. However, such is war. Above this roof, I determined to pile up sandbags against the wall, right away up to the roof of the cottage. This necessitated about 40 sandbags being filled, so it may easily be imagined we didn't do this all at once. However, in time it was done. I mean after we had paid one or two more visits to the trenches. We all felt safer after these efforts. I think we were a bit safer, but not much. I mean that we were fairly all right against anything but a direct hit, and we knew from which direction direct hits had to come. We had made that wall as thick as possible. We could, I think, have smiled at a direct hit from an 18-pounder, provided we had been down our funk hole at the time. But of course, a direct hit from a Johnson would have snuffed us out completely, mattress and all. Life in this house and in the village was much more interesting and energetic than in that old trench. It was possible, by observing great caution, to creep out of the house by day and dodge about our position a bit, crawl up to points of vantage and survey the scene. Behind the cottage lay the wood, the great Wart de Plugstedt, and this in itself repaid a visit. In the early months of 1915, this wood was in a pretty mauled-about state, and as time went on, of course, got more so. It was full of old trenches filled with water, relics of the period when we turned the Germans out of it. Shattered trees and old barbed wire in a solution of mud was the chief effect produced by the parts nearest the trenches, but further back, Plug Street Wood was quite a pretty place to walk about in birds singing all around and rabbits darting about the tangled undergrowth. Long paths had been cut through the wood, leading to the various parts of the trenches in front. A very quaint place, take it all in all, and one which has left a curious and not unpleasing impression on my mind. This ability to wander around and creep about various parts of our position led to my getting an idea, which nearly finished my life in the cottage, village or even Belgium. I suddenly got bitten with the sniping fever and it occurred to me that with my facilities for getting about I could get into a certain mangled farm on our left and remain in the roof unseen in daylight. From there I felt sure that with the aid of a rifle I could tickle up a Bosch or two in their trenches hard by. I was immensely taken with this idea so one morning, like Robinson Crusoe again, I set off with my fowling piece and ammunition and crawled towards the farm. I got there all right, and entering the dark and evil-smelling precincts, searched around for a suitable sniping post, 
I saw a beam overhead in a corner from which, if I could get onto it, I felt sure I could obtain a view of the enemy trenches through a gap in the tiled roof. I tied a bit of string to my rifle, and then jumping for the beam, scrambled up on it and pulled the rifle up after me. When my heart pulsations had come down to a reasonable figure, I peered out through the hole in the tiles. An excellent view. The German parapet a hundred yards away. Splendid. Now I felt sure I should see a Bosch moving about or something. Or I might possibly spot one looking over the top. I waited a long time on that beam with my loaded rifle lying in front of me. I was just getting fed up with the waiting and about to go away when I thought I saw movement in the trench opposite. Yes, it was. I saw the handle of something like a broom or a water scoop moving above the sandbags. Heart doing overtime again. Most exciting. I felt convinced I should see a Bosch before long. And then, at last, I saw one. Or rather, I caught a glimpse of a hat appearing above the line of a parapet. One of those small, circular cloth hats of theirs with the two trouser buttons in front. Up it came. I saw it stand out nice and clear above the skyline. I carefully raised my rifle, took a steady aim and fired. I looked. Disappearance of hat. I ejected the empty cartridge case and was just about to reload when... Whiz! Whistle! Bang! Crash! A shell came right at the farm and exploded in the courtyard behind. I stopped short on the beam. Whiz! Whistle! Bang! Crash! Another right into the old cowshed on my left. Without waiting for any more, I just slivered off that beam, grabbed my rifle, and dashing out across the yard, back into the ditch beyond, started hastily scrambling along towards the end of one of our trenches. As I went, I heard four more shells crash into that farm. It was at this moment that I coined the title of one of my sketches. They've evidently seen me, for which I afterwards drew the picture at Wolvergem. I got back to our cottage crawled into the hole in the floor and thought things over. They must have seen the flash of my rifle through the tiles and, suspecting possible sniping from the farm, must have wired back to their artillery, Sniping Berg from Farmhausen Hoch! or words to that effect. Altogether, a very objectionable episode. And with that narrow escape, we end Chapter 12. Hope you've enjoyed the, this episode from 1914-1918world.com. Thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, leave comments, please. That's all really helpful for the podcast. And uh, look forward to catching up with you at our next episode. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. <laughs>